the noun. Not to say that it does not mean it's not the delay is not going to be anymore. Yes, I, I would think delay is an appropriate understanding of this that the Lord is delaying no longer. He is on his way because in the next uh, verse, verse 7, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. So we who have lived in mystery for who knows how many thousands of years since Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, we have lived in mystery. You and I don't have full knowledge. We see through a glass darkly. We don't understand much. We just graze the hem of the garment of heaven. In Revelation 10, the mystery is over. And with the mystery, time. I think it does not just mean delay. There will be no more delay. I think the King James is as right as delay because of the, of the usage of the word. There will be no more time. Time ends at the blowing of the seventh trumpet as we know it. This bubble has burst. So what has been in the bubble? What is in the bubble that you and I live in? We live, we are bookended by paradise. And this great bubble of time now sits between Paradise of Eden and the Paradise of Revelation. The mystery of God, which is Christ in us, we're living in that mystery in this bubble. We are living in a veil in which God has kept many things secret since the foundation of the earth that were revealed to the prophets according to Amos and according to Colossians and according to many, many other references in Scripture, that the things that the prophets uttered were things that were kept secret except they were revealed to the prophets so the prophets could prepare people for Christ to recognize him. So in this uh, time bubble, we... Uh, we need to look at a couple of, um, of scriptures. Turn to um, Ecclesiastes. No, turn, yeah, turn to Ecclesiastes 1. What we are having a problem with now that we live in the uh, confines uh, and the constraints of time is we have no frame of reference for understanding that which is outside of time. We have no frame of reference for understanding a being which exists but without a beginning. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1 is where we're headed. We can maybe fathom not having an end. I, I can kind of get my mind on that a little bit. But I can't fathom an eternal being that exists that has had no beginning. I have to stop somewhere back there and just stop thinking about it because my mind gets fried. So God being beyond anything we have a comprehension of because we are time draped, he is so far beyond what we can understand that we had to have Christ come to show us God because he is so far beyond our comprehension and our frame of reference. 
So we live in this mysterious zone that is not a mystery to anyone else but us. Time is our aberration. Time, we are the exception. The rule is eternity. The rule is someone who exists without beginning and without end. We just don't have uh, our, our uh, handle on that uh, and, and never can. But in Ecclesiastes 1, and I'm not there, but would somebody read verses 7 through 9 if you are there at Ecclesiastes 1? Okay, and uh, verse 9. When what has been is what will be, what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new to the Okay, here the, the writer of, the Ecclesi uh, of Ecclesiastes is, is grappling with the mysteries that he sees about it. That all the, the rivers of the, the uh, earth flow into the sea and it doesn't make a bit of difference. It doesn't. It doesn't cause the sea to be full. Uh, then he comes down, the things, verse 9, the thing that has been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. And then you go over to uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And he gets even more specific here. I know that whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it, and God does it that men should fear before him. That which has been is now, and that which is to be has already been. Isn't that a strange scripture? That which has been is now, and that which is to be already has been. Which brings us to Revelation 13. So he is saying something about time. He is saying something about the reality of life on this planet that we can only guess at. But look at what Revelation 13, verse 8 says. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life, him being the, the Antichrist. Uh, him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's talking about Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. So what is he talking about here? What is Ecclesiastes talking about here? In our time bubble, what are we to do with this? Let's look at another contributing scripture in Isaiah 6. This is where uh, the prophet Isaiah 
whether in person or in vision, and I rather suspect it's in the spirit, even though it may, it may allude to a vision, he appears before, in the first part of Isaiah 6, the throne of God. In the year, verse 1, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And he describes what he sees there in the throne room of heaven. And he describes what he hears there in verse 3. Um, these angelic beings cried one to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Then in verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me because I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now what that is about references back to Moses on uh, the mountain in Exodus uh, 33, asking God that he would let him, Moses, see God's face, to see his glory. And God responds to him and says, no man sees the glory of God, no man sees the face of God and lives. That's because we are unholy, we, we are not, we are flawed and blemished, and when, if man comes into the direct presence of the holiness and the glory of God, God cannot tolerate that which is unholy. And so it is, in a sense, destroyed. Because he can't change who he is. And he can't bend his holiness to accommodate our unholiness. So Isaiah knows this. And he finds himself in some way that he knows not how he got there in the presence of the holiness of God. And he says, oh, wow, I am done for because I am not holy and I'm in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. Now look at what happens to save this prophet in a sense. Then in verse 6, one of the angelic beings, beings called Seraphim that he saw there around the throne of God um, flew unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your sin is taken away. And your sin is purged. Now, what on earth is going on there? What are we looking at here? What is it that takes away the sins of the world? And what is it that takes away the, our sins? Pardon me? The blood of Jesus. Uh, Hebrews says the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Behold, John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is only one, one item in eternity and the universe that removes sin. 
And it's the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The lamb that was sacrificed on the altar of the earth, the world at Calvary. So what, what do you make of this where he, this angel flies to the altar and there's two altars? If we understand that the tabernacle and the temple are patterns and Xerox copies of heaven and how it's set up, according to Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, then in the tabernacle of Moses, you have the golden altar, which is before the Lord, which Revelation 5 and 8 tells us is the prayer altar, in a sense. And Leviticus 16 tells us that as well. Then you have the bronze altar, which is out in the outer courtyard, which is where they would bring sacrifices daily. They would sacrifice the unblemished lamb. They would sacrifice the unblemished uh, animals uh, on that altar daily, morning and evening. So there is an altar in heaven that has something on it that took away Isaiah's sin. I would throw out to you that this is Christ slain since the foundation of the earth. I would throw out to you that in some way I cannot comprehend because it is a mystery. That in the spiritual realm, Christ sacrificed since the foundation of the earth that his broken physical body in, or body in shed blood in some way was on the bronze altar in heaven. In the spiritual realm, not in the physical. So it wouldn't be his blood. In the, in the spiritual realm was there to take away Isaiah's sin. I don't understand Christ slain since the foundation of the earth, but in the spiritual realm, what I think we may be looking at here, and this is kind of a mind warp, <laughs> kind of, it blows my mind to even talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Ecclesiastes says everything that is already has been, and that which will be already has been. I mean, he's, he's talking about. There's no constraints here. So the sense you get here is that in the spiritual realm, everything exists. Everything exists in the spiritual realm already. Past, present, and future exist in some sort of spiritual realm. It was just 2,000 years ago that the physical curtain was parted for the physical crucifixion of Christ to manifest that was already some sort of slain reality in the spiritual realm. But in the right timing and season on earth, that physical curtain was parted for Christ to advent, to come down here in physical form and complete what had already been done. So that he died for sin for all time, past, present, and future. It covers it all. 
So the idea that I have in my head, the picture I have in my head, is if we were up in a helicopter, and uh, let's say we were up, uh, you know, 2,000 feet high in a helicopter, and we're we're looking at the traffic on the highway, and way down about five miles east of Rockwall, we see this major crash. And we're in a car crossing Lake Ray Hubbard. That crash is, has happened, and the flames are burning. But it's in my future on the bridge. That's the bubble of time. And as that bubble of time moves through space, through spiritual space, as this earth bubble of time moves through spiritual space, that which already is becomes my present reality when I catch up with it. Does that make sense? If you see the car as a picture of physical earth, and we're moving through this spiritual arena, this greater spiritual reality in which Christ was already slain since the foundation of the earth. And so when earth gets to the point where it's ripe and it is time, then Christ comes in the fullness of time. Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, he came. So we have this God outside of time, but who stamps time with his calendar anyway. He engages in time and he uses time precisely. We have this God who is eternal, who has no bounds, who has no time constraints whatsoever, and he engages you and me on this planet in precise time designations. So he takes time itself and stamps it with his calendar. Let me just talk with you for a few minutes about the fullness of time. Why did he wait till when he did for Christ to come in the fullness of time? When it was exactly ripe, earth was for the picking. When Christ came, there was a peace that spread over the, all the known world at the time. It was called Pax Romana. It was the Roman peace, and it lasted for 70 years, and it hit exactly when Christ came. So that in peace, those who were missionaries and apostles could travel all over the known world at that time in peace, speaking and preaching the good news. They could travel all over because there were Roman roads. They could travel because there were Roman roads that were built all over the known world. They could travel because there were shipping lanes where ships from went everywhere because there was peace. So the travel was extensive only because of the Roman Empire and of the Roman peace. There was a universal language 